Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, a pandemic and the outbreak of war in Europe has certainly changed our world. But as governments and businesses all over the world reassess their dependency on other nations, are we witnessing the end of globalisation? Elliot Hentoff of State Street Advisors will join me shortly to discuss. And quitting while they are ahead, we hear from an executive coach about why some high achievers choose to step away when they're at the very top of their game. And the latest Engineers Ireland industry report shows us that the sector's in big demand, but there's still a massive gap in the number of women who are getting involved in the field professionally. We're going to look at the reasons why and what can be done about it. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, we're joined by Elliot Hentoff, who's Head of Policy and Research at State Street Global Advisors. Elliot, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today on Newstalk. Thank you for having me, Mandy. Now, deglobalization is the buzzword du jour. Many are pointing to the invasion of the Ukraine and the pandemic as the catalyst. Others say it started back with the banking crisis of 2008. Elliot, what exactly does deglobalization mean and where in the cycle are we in your view? Well, what does globalization mean? And globalization means that cross-border flows carry on increasing. That can be flows in goods, services, people, data, and so forth. Um, And deglobalization is obviously the reversal thereof, where actually cross-border activity starts to contract. And uh, there is, I'd say, you mentioned earlier that there was question marks whether that was with the financial crisis. Uh, For about a decade, we had peak globalization, i.e., it neither grew nor contracted, whereas now it does look like all indications are that by conventional metrics, things are actually going in reverse. So we're talking about a period in our history when economic trade and investment between countries, typically nation states, is in decline. What can we learn from previous periods of history when deglobalization happened? There's two things we can learn. One is it typically heralds uh, certain patterns of international relations, so the politics and security of how the world is run. Uh, And secondly, it has big implications for how domestic political or regional political economies are set up, meaning which industries uh, do better, uh, to what degree you basically get a shift from uh, labor to capital or capital to, to labor in certain parts of the world domestically within economies. Those are the two big impacts. So what's causing this contraction at the moment? Well, I'd say we've had a a triple shock in triple blow in a row. Uh, Really, you you mentioned the financial crisis was not a blow per se. What it had stopped was the financialization or the financial globalization. Cross-border capital flows slowed down, cross-border loans and, and borrowing uh, s- slowed down. And that was just a result of the financial system having uh, a, go- a, a strong heart attack, so to speak. But in recent, the last five years, we've actually experienced direct hits to the global trading regime. The first one were the trade wars between US and China under President Trump. Uh, that was the first trigger because it basically 
reintroduced politics directly into global economic affairs in a way that hadn't been the case for about 25 years prior. Then we were followed by a second shock, which was the pandemic, which, as you know, number one, made us all alert to the fact that there's a huge trade dependency within the supply chain for essential goods, essential medical goods, things that are absolutely crisis necessary. But at the same time, also, you know, you, when all of us were staying at home and ordering our Amazon mm. packages, uh, we had to wait longer for supply chains. So it also just showed us that the efficiency of having these global supply chains does not work in terms of uh, the speed and reliability. And now we've had the third big shock. And the third big shock is probably bigger than the other two put together, uh, which is that really the security concerns at the end of the day are going to dominate and take place again in terms of how we shape our economic relations and how companies make business choices in their everyday life. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what happens to an investment in general in a period like this? Well, there's plenty. There's uh, obviously speaking to an investment manager, so I can tell you there's plenty of great investments that's, that still can be made in such an environment. Uh, but it does shift some of the underlying theses. So you have to think about well, who benefited in globalization and who benefits from deglobalization? There's certain countries and regions in the world that do better in this environment, and there's certain companies that are better set up for that as well. Elliot, in a national sense, who are the winners and losers in globalization? Well, uh, let's start off with maybe at a country level. In principle, you know, who did really well in globalization? Well, it was kind of lower and medium income countries that were able to develop quickly by riding kind of the global export train to, to, to higher income. Now, that's going to be much, much harder for countries that are not part of a big, large trading block. So the, the losers in the future world are countries that stand alone in many ways, or countries that are not a member of either the EU trading area, NAFTA, or the greater Asian China bloc that's emerging under a trade agreement called RCEP. Um, any country that's outside of that stands to lose. The second thing is you're probably going to be a loser as a country if you at least do not have access to, to capital markets. You're not in good standing in the world. You, do not have, you cannot tap capital at low rates. Instead, you're very much at the whim of global financing conditions, and that could be very punitive. Uh, so that, too, is, is different from the past 10 years where pretty much money was flowing everywhere. And uh, it was basically easy to ra raising money was not a problem. That's going to be different in the environment going forward. And the third area, I would say, is, is your country part of the future? Are you part of gr green energy, renewables, uh, 5G, AI, the, the technology revolution? Does your country have a role to play in any of that? Uh, if yes, then you're, you're probably... You're part of the winners, but if not, then part of the losers. And when you apply that, certain regions of the world look good. You know, for instance, Mexico looks fairly good on that metric because it has access to NAFTA, access to capital, and at the same time, it's integrated into a lot of the U.S. industries. Um, before the war, I would have told you Eastern Europe looked good mm -hmm. or Southeast Asia as well. Less well-positioned in principle are countries like uh, Turkey, South Africa, or parts of Latin America, which, you know, they, they produce a lot of valuable commodities, which right now, today, in this point in time, looks attractive, but is not a durable 
a growth model. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Elliot Hentoff, Head of Policy and Research at State Street Global Advisors. Elliot, I want to turn now to some of the issues that affect business and consumers in relation to globalisation and now deglobalization. Can we look first at um, the inflation issue? The current disruption uh, of supply chains, especially for energy, means that inflation is going to be much higher for much longer than many had suspected. Is that contributing to the more localised approach to policy and trade? No, the, I'd say the inf- inflation is just a consequence of all the disruptions we've had. And the, the, I think in, what has changed really is probably a year, year and a half ago, all of us thought, okay, we've had this big disruption. At some point, we will get back to some mm. some level of normalcy. normalcy. And that, yeah. also, that, that also meant supply chains, that meant inflation going back down, um, I think we now realize that some of this disruption is actually going to be with us for quite some time. And that also goes for uh, inf- inflation. So it's more of a consequence than than a cause of the disruption. So I was just going to say cost uh, and efficiency of transport is another huge uh, part of making globalization work. So that's also been really badly affected in the recent crisis uh, during the pandemic and, and now again, uh, with the war in Ukraine. Yes, I, and I think, uh, let, let's be clear here, energy is, the cost is going up temporarily. That's a temporary price shock. It won't be as bad as it is right now for much longer. Uh, but when it settles to a new normal, that new normal will be higher than it's been for the past five, 10 years. So energy overall is going to be more expensive. And you're right, that's also going to, that's a factor against long distances as, against uh, um, complex supply chains too. You mentioned there um, the issue of investment as an asset manager. The BlackRock chief Larry Fink recently said that the alternatives to Russian oil and gas and the search for those will inevitably slow the world's progress towards net zero emissions in the near term. What's your thoughts on that? You know, you you should really at least try to take in how the world changes. And when I say that, it means that this is a very paradoxical event that comes out of Russia, Ukraine, and the the shock it triggers, which means on one hand, yes, we are going to have decarbonization on steroids. The push, we already had kind of straight line curves upwards on renewables, on growth of solar on growth of wind production, et cetera, that will definitely carry on, if not accelerate as a result. But at the same time, we're going to have a huge push on fossilized fuels too in the short term, and there's no way around it. And so you basically have a boom both for dirty energy and for clean energy at the same time. And that may be paradoxical for everybody to keep in, in, in their mind at once, uh, but that is the reality. Now, the, obviously the fossilized boom is a very cyclical one, meaning I, I do expect that to, to last only a few years and then to gradually fade, uh, whereas the other one is more of a structural ongoing shift that will be with us probably for the rest of our lives. But a lot of the policy uh, around the development of fossil fuel has changed, particularly in Europe. And so they might be starting from a standing base and trying to scale up new exploration or LNG terminals. Yeah, well, th- th- there's uh, there's no good solution to energy policy because it's one of those things that take a long time. Mm. And so Europe, there's a few quick hits. One is, you know, let's build as much LNG terminals as we can. 
well, that's that's great. That still takes months, quarters, sometimes years. And then you also have to have LNG come from somewhere, which in most cases, uh, you know, there's not that much swing capacity. Then you can kind of slow slow down the phase out of nuclear that's being that's happening now in continental Europe. You can build new nuclear that takes that has a very long lead time, uh, so that also is not an immediate quick fix. Uh, there is one quick fix you have not heard much about, which is probably coming, and that is coal. Coal is one of the few uh, sources of fuel where we do have swing capacity, and we mm. do have swing capacity in Europe. Now, obviously, it's incredibly dirty fuel, and we actually wanted to stop using it. Some countries actually have basically reduced usage close to zero, like the UK. Um, but that will actually have to experience a short-term boom if indeed um, there needs to be a short-term substitute for Russian supplies. That brings us neatly along to the German government's plans announced this week, which many believe is a, is a precursor to, to rationing of gas. If Russia withdraw their gas supply to Germany and, and maybe even to Europe, what effect do you think that that will have on the European supply and pricing? If there's any energy supply disruption, let's be very clear, if there's an actual disruption um, and German factories have to reduce production as a result, we are t- probably talking about a recession in Western Europe. Uh, there, there's, under, there's only a few scenarios. It would have to be very short-lived, but any actual outage of energy is probably going to lead to a recession in Western Europe. And I think that's, that's also one of the reasons there's been such reluctance uh, among the German government to actually go down that route. Because as I mentioned before, even with all the you know, ramping up of LNG and nuclear and possibly even coal, you, you still don't fully make up for the, what you lose from the Russians. And that means... Your economy has a capacity constraint. It doesn't have enough energy to do what it needs to do, keep the factories on, running transport, heating homes, uh, and so forth. And as a result, economic activity has to contract to a level where there's sufficient energy. And that, you know, that's that's hard, very hard to model from an economic standpoint as to what how big that damage would be. Some economists argue it would be very modest. And others advising the German government say it would actually be quite steep. And therefore, that, that, that explains the reluctance there. We just turn to the issue uh, briefly of political globalization. Some might look at the reaction to the war in, in Ukraine and say that the West is perhaps more aligned than we might have thought at the beginning. Is this not an example of globalization against a common en- enemy through tacit support, if not um, the structures of NATO? Yeah, well, I think one one upside in this whole deglobalization is it, globalization was the the, the 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 falling of borders, and deglobalization is the raising of borders. But that does not it does not mean a free for all, everyone out for themselves. In fact, it really means that you have much more cohesiveness among regions. And when I say regions, that means like minded states. They they don't necessarily have to be geographical regions. And here, the West, when we talk about the West. It includes Japan, it includes Korea, it includes Taiwan, um, and, and some other states around the world. Uh, so in, in that respect, you're right. I do think this is going to help foster uh, not only political and security integration, but a renewed sense of uh, perhaps economic integration and purpose among uh, a lot of industrialized co- economies. And that could be good. Mm. You, remember just two, three years ago, we were talking about large-scale US-EU trade disputes. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what, Mandy? They've all, a lot of them have been resolved lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not a coincidence. Uh, obviously, some of the resolution has simply been to table them into the distant future. But nonetheless, uh, that 
source of friction is probably not going to be there for some time. And that's good news. Before we let you go, I just wanted to get your views um, on the, again, globalized political reaction to, to COVID and the pandemic. Um, it was a huge step change in how governments looked at solutions. We had one common enemy. But do you think that the world can point to um, common solutions or did was it every man for himself? Yeah, well, we unfortunately do not have the optimal global governance and we will not have it. I think it's naive to believe so. Um, obviously, with climate change as a major threat, one, one does hope that there will be sufficient shared interest to, to take the measures necessary. Uh, I think th from a governance standpoint, we're going to certainly fall short. The hope on those shared challenges is that the commercial economic interests of climate change adaptation and mitigation become so powerful that that overrides the disagreements on a geopolitical level. Mm. And that's I, frankly where I'm staking my hope in, not my expectations, but my hope. Well, hope springs eternal. Um, OK, we leave it there, Elliot. That's uh, very interesting and there's much food for thought. That's Elliot Hentoff, Head of Policy and Research at State Street Global Advisors. Elliot, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, recently, the world number one tennis seed, Ash Barty, shocked many by announcing her retirement from the sport at the tender age of 25. And as many companies all over Ireland struggle to deal with the great resignation and retain their high-level staff, today we wanted to examine what makes a high achiever quit when they're at the very top of their game. I'm joined now by executive psychologist Jill Walker. Jill, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today on News Talk. Thanks. It's great to be here and great to be here in person in it studios is. as well. It is indeed. It makes a big difference. Jill, could you start us off by telling us what are the characteristics of a professional high achiever? So the characteristics really are tenacity, drive, determination, hardworking, resilience, and usually quite a lot of confidence as well. And willingness to take risks usually too. So those are some of the key characteristics. What exactly is an executive psychologist? What do you do? Well, what I do is I specialise with people who are like Ash Barty at the top of their game. So people who are business people, normally CEOs, C-suite, uh, successful entrepreneurs and business founders who are at the top of their profession, but they're starting to reach that stage of life where they're wondering what's next for them. So a lot of times this presents, presents as they're wanting more time for what's real. they're realising is actually really important or maybe they're missing out on certain parts of their life. Or there's that starting feeling of, am I really feeling as fulfilled by my work anymore? Um, and perhaps looking for a change in terms of it being, having more um, meaning or purpose or um, impact in terms of what they do. And is this something that you've um, noticed has increased um, during COVID? Like, do you think that COVID has altered our definition of what success really is? Are there more people coming to you now with the ambition to change? I think there's, this has always been going on. So I call it midlife questioning. It's an absolutely classic psychological stage that people go through. Now, it's not a very well understood stage. It's not talked about that much. We all know about the infamous midlife crisis, but midlife questioning is much less understood. And it's a stage where people are have achieved a lot of the goals of their life. So, you know, in the early part of your life and career, it's a lot about achieving, acquiring, achieving goals and um, getting to a certain stage in, in your profession or career. This is usually the next goal in front of you. But at a certain point, either you're repeating some of those goals, you're just doing more or bigger, or perhaps it just isn't as fulfilling anymore. At the same time, chances are you might be in your 40s or 50s. You've got a greater sense of time being finite. 
So this stage of questioning, what do I really want? How do I really want to work or live the rest of my life is, is a classic psychological phenomenon that people go through. But to answer your question about COVID, yes. So this has been going on already, but COVID has definitely brought a few things to the fore. For instance, I would have found that a lot of people might have been in that situation, having that kind of nagging sense of, am I, am I as fulfilled as I could be or as happy as I could be? But they didn't really know how to work a different way. But of course, COVID has been the biggest disruptor we've ever had to the way we work. So now suddenly people are realising there is another way. We can do things differently. People who always, always travelled or always commuted, discovering actually there's different ways of working. Maybe I can actually prioritise walking my child to school in the morning or taking that walk at lunchtime. So I think it's given people permission or people have realised there are other ways of being. So it's, it's for a lot of people, it's made it easier. So there's probably no better time to actually be grappling with some of these questions now. Just to go back to Ash Barty, who I mentioned at the beginning, mm. um, I know some people have kind of scoffed at the resignation and, and think that she'll come back as many other tennis players have and sports sports professionals who've resigned and then come mm. back at another time. But she I was interested in, in what she said. She said, I don't have the drive or the emotional want. Does our mentality change as we get older? And does ambition um, I suppose lessen as we mature is there a particular age point when people become less ambitious I really don't think that people become less ambitious I really don't any of this so I work with mostly with CEOs um, highly successful highly driven highly hardworking people I don't think I don't think that drive changes I think the form it takes can change so in other words on the way up when you're trying to build that business get that CEO role be a CEO of a billion dollar company, whatever the, the goal is. When you're going for that goal, that drive is there. And that drive doesn't go away. But I think what it does do is it shifts. And the shift is often from what I would call from success towards significance. You know, that's the first part, creating success, establishing myself, maybe buying the house, raising the family or whatever. But then very often what people have is a growing sense of I want my life to matter. I want my work to matter. In fact, what one of my clients said to me once was, if I'm going to work this hard, I want to make sure what I'm doing matters. So that's what's often happening. So I don't think the drive, the ambition goes away. Most of my CEOs that I work with and entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs still want to jump out of bed and motivated and excited about every day. They're still really driven. But maybe how they want to apply that might shift slightly, yes. Mm, I often find that many senior people in business and in politics, an area that I'm very familiar with, are often incredibly caught up in their title. Mm. Um, do you think that some people who are professionally successful then struggle uh, to distinguish the difference between who they are and what they do? There's no, there's no doubt that, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why the more successful you are, actually the more the things that have led to your own success can be the very things that make it harder for you to change. Because if you think about it, if you're in a high profile role, if, you've, um, if you're well known, if you've got a lot of success and people know you have a really good reputation, then it's more public, first of all, mm. whenever you make a change. You can't just slip under the radar and go and retrain and do something else. It's much more public. But also, chances are the very drive that got you there, that tenacity, that determination, that hardworking um, part of your personality means you probably identify a lot. Your job is a big part of your identity. And that's what I find working with people, that this is a a psychological transition. So it's more than making the outer change. The outer change is actually relatively straightforward. You decide, okay, I'm no longer going to be CEO of my company. I'm going to be chair of the board instead. I'm going to 
move in, into a different industry, whatever the outer change is, that's relatively straightforward. It's what people think is the difficult bit. The harder bit often, though, is the psychological transition, which is an inner part. It's how you feel. It's your mindset. It's the beliefs you have about yourself. It's your identity. And that can be quite tricky for people, particularly in that sort of no man's land. If you're changing from one thing to another, when you might be leaving the success the ego validation that you get from from being successful in what you do and as you're moving into something else, it can be a tricky place where you're not quite established in something else or perhaps you don't know yet what that other thing is. For instance, if you've exited a business, sold your business. Um, so that can be a tricky place for people because of that I- identity, as you say, with the title, with the role that you have. Mm. Sure. So say we're not talking about a CEO here who's um, moving on. Say we're talking about a CEO who's trying to manage a senior management team who themselves are fancying a shift around. Mm. How do you cope with someone who's professionally high achieving and wants a change, but you want to keep them? How does someone manage someone and, um, I suppose, encourage them to stay within a firm that they might already be with? What do they respond to? It's a really good point. This isn't all about quitting. We, we started by talking about Ash Barty mm. and she, she quit. She's moving into something else. But a lot of times, actually, this isn't about quitting. It's more about realigning. So a lot of times my clients don't actually do the dramatic change. What they do is they, they start figuring out what they really, what really fills them up, what what brings them joy, what what energises them, what's the work where they feel like they can add the most value and they start making shifts towards that and trying to do less of the stuff that either drains them or they just find not as satisfying anymore. So in the same way, if we were trying to keep somebody and we don't want them to move on, it would be having that sort of conversation and trying to see if we make some shifts that they can start doing more of the things where they can really add value, where they feel more validated, they feel a greater sense of fulfilment. And maybe over time they could delegate out um, or somebody could be moving on up the ranks and taking on some other work that they that they used to do. So that's a great way um, to keep somebody in, in the role. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to executive psychologist Jill Walker. Jill, one of the things I wanted to look at was, and, and we're not talking about someone quitting and retiring, um, is the evolution of someone's career now beyond, say, being a CEO. That notion of having one defined career has has gone, hasn't it? Mm. Somebody can really take their skills that they've acquired at a very high level and apply them to something completely different in a way that we may not have imagined years ago. Are you finding that uh, people are coming out of big businesses and diversifying into completely different uh, arenas? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's one of the big things that comes with this, having been successful, having got to the, what you might call the the top of the, what's often called the first mountain or the second mountain, the first mountain of success and achievement. But we want to keep climbing that mountain again and again and again. Maybe the view isn't so exciting once we've climbed it a few times. So the second mountain in our life is often more about significance, meaning, purpose. And that's often where people start saying, how can I use the skills that I've honed and developed? They don't want to start again. They want to use that, but maybe start using it in a more meaningful way. Often people might say, I want to make more of a difference. I want to give back in some way. or I want to use those skills. So they're using what they've developed and honed over all those years, but starting to apply it in a way that might do some good, but also is more fulfilling and meaningful for them. So money, uh, of course, is a big factor in all of our life decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people would like to change, uh, but don't have the luxury of quitting Mm -hmm. or moving on. Uh, What would you say to someone who's in a job, um, 
wants to change something, but actually their personal circumstances, family, mortgages, they can't quit. What should they do? This is, yeah, this is absolutely, this midlife questioning or this changing from success to significance isn't just for the luxury of those who are um, independently wealthy. It's, it's a really common shift that people start to go through. So really it's what I said about starting to get super clear on what it is that actually you really enjoy doing, what's, what matters to you, what's fulfilling to you. And very often the biggest guide for this is your own gut instinct. And anybody I know who works in business trusts their gut. They'll always have known a time where they did something and they knew deep down that they shouldn't have done it and their gut was telling them no, but they did it. Or the other, maybe they trusted their gut and everyone else saying no way. They trust it. Most of us in the business world and just everybody has that gut instinct and it's the most powerful thing you can use at this phase of your life, which is listen to that. Try to shut out the noise of what other people think and other people's expectations because this is about your life and your journey. And Ash Barty, for instance, said that it was a difficult decision, but it was the right decision for her in her heart and in her gut. And she knew it was the right decision for her. So in the same way, it's figuring out what are those things that will be more meaningful for you. And then it's a case of trying to see what you can do. Having a conversation, if you're in a, an employee, having a conversation with your boss, I'd really like to get involved in those kind of projects. Is there a possibility that I could start delegating or mentoring somebody to take on some of those things that now you you can do very easily and aren't quite so fulfilling or challenging for you anymore. So we can very much shape it within the role that we're in as well. So Jill, would you say that um, people are less stepping away and more reinventing themselves then? I think there's both. I think some people, it's a more incremental change and they want to adapt and shift a little bit in what they do. And other people, they're they're really ready for that more transformative change and they want to do something completely different, which might have been the case with Ash Barty. Um, certainly the case in my story that I wanted to do a, a significant shift and other people want to just feel a bit more aligned. Perhaps one of the big things I see as well as fulfillment is wanting more time for what's important. And an awful lot of people really do like their job or like what they do, but they're just sacrificing a little bit too much. They're just not getting time for some of those other important parts of their life or other projects they might want to do or having that quality time for themselves or with friends or family. So sometimes it's just those those shifts in terms of really making that a priority um, and acting on that. So I'm thinking um, of sports professionals, high business achievers and that old adage about politics that all political careers end in failure. So what type of person, what characteristics do they have, the ones who are able to walk away in the good times? I really think the biggest thing for somebody who actually walks away, like really does do it um, rather than thinks about it, Mm -hmm. is courage. Yeah, because I think there's such an identity, as we said, around the role, the title is a huge amount of internal pressure to keep doing what you've done because you're successful, you're good at it. There's external pressure, the societal pressure So to actually have the courage and say, do you know what? I only have one life and I know that I want to do something different. Sometimes people don't even know what that something is. So what we have in these big decisions is either a moving away driver or a moving towards driver. And for most of us, a moving away driver is easier. It's that sense of, I know I'm not having enough time with things that are important or I'm not really enjoying that as much. We know what, much more easily what we don't want, but actually the moving towards driver, what do I really want to do? That can sometimes take a little bit of time, a little bit of exploration, a little bit of courage. So really, I think that the difference between somebody who thinks about it, maybe a lot of times when people come to me, they say, I've been thinking about this for quite some time, and then they come to me. So I think... 
courage and actually following through, listening to that that inner voice, that that gut instinct. Because one of the things that high achievers have a big tendency to do, they hear that little voice, that little nagging voice saying something like, I could be happier or more fulfilled. Maybe I could do something else. And do you know what they do? They work twice as hard. What they do is they set themselves another goal. Maybe they say, right, we'll diversify in the business. I'll take on another project. I'll take on a NED. We'll scale the business. We'll move into a different um, location with this business. So they take on something else. And what the, all that does is it might quieten the little voice for a little while. Because when we're really busy, we often don't have time to think. But that voice Eventually, does not go away. It will come back yeah. again. So if I have one piece of advice for your listeners... If if you if any of this is going on for you, I would say if you're hearing that little voice, that gut instinct, listen to it and listen to what it's saying because it's not going to go away if you just get busy or set another goal. Okay, well that's really good advice for all of our high achievers listening in this morning. But for now, we leave it there. That's executive psychologist Jill Walker. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Ireland already has many great female leaders in company like Twitter, Vodafone, Air, Intel. But we need many more women tech leaders coming through if we're to make Ireland the leader that the government says we can be in our digital Ireland framework. But here to discuss, I'm joined now by Professor Orla Feely and she is President of Engineers Ireland and also Vice President for Research and Innovation and Impact at University College Dublin. Orla, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Mandy. Orla, before we examine the issue of women in STEM and in the profession of engineering, can you start by telling us what your sector uh, is like? Engineers must be in very high demand with all this building that's going on and, and everything that's promised. How are things going? Oh, engineers are in hugely high demand. You talk there about construction, so civil and structural engineers, of course, very much in demand there, but across all domains, electronic engineering, in pharmaceuticals, in computer engineering and software, uh, mechanical engineers, every branch of engineering feeds into every branch of Ireland's industrial development, and we are in enormously high demand. Where are engineers typically employed in Ireland? I just want to try and get a sense of also what the salary is like for someone who might be thinking of choosing a career here. Are they largely employed by private sector or is there public sector jobs to be had here? Uh, there will be some public sector jobs such as in the local authorities and so on, but primarily it is in the private sector and particularly the foreign direct investment sector, where if you look at all the areas in which Ireland's economy has boomed over recent decades and over recent years, very much that is driven by engineering. It, these are by and large engineering companies. They employ engineers in very large numbers. And the availability of engineering talent is a signifier and a differentiator among all countries that are competing for those jobs. Now, this week, Engineers Ireland published Engineering 2022, a barometer of the profession in Ireland. What did your report find? Yes. So, so we continue to see an underrepresentation of women in the field, unfortunately. So, so in Ireland, out of 120 people, if you look at STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths more generally, of 120,000 people working in those fields in Ireland, just about a quarter are women. 
Okay, so, that, so, so that's a problem, first of all, across all of science, technology and engineering. But the numbers are even lower in engineering. About 12% of engineers in the country are women. Um, about 12% of our membership in Engineers Ireland are women. So we'd like to see that number much higher. Now, there are positive trends among those graduating in engineering. About 23% are women in my own university here, University College Dublin. In some years, it's as high as 35% would be women. So we are seeing more women come into education and the profession, but we really want to see that pipeline continue all the way up into employment and, and, and grow still further. Yeah, one of the anomalies that struck me from your report is that um, despite 23% of the engineering graduates being women, then only 12% are actually in the profession. Why is there such a drop off? Well, one thing is that the numbers in education have risen in recent years. So, for example, in 2016, it, it was, I, I, I think it was about 17% graduating were women. So, you know, the, the, the numbers in education have risen over recent years. And also then, not all women stay in the profession. There are many, many, many outlets for people with engineering degrees and not all stay in the engineering profession. So we want to make sure that the profession is a welcoming environment, an environment in which people want to stay build their careers, advance into leadership and serve as role models for future generations. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Professor Orla Feely, President of Engineers Ireland. Um, Orla, I was previously involved with um, Dublin City University and I know that and all of the other universities spent an awful lot of time trying to promote women in STEM, but is there still a bias in the education system about females who are not suited to technical careers? I know that you you and Engineers Ireland recently held an Engineers Week uh, with guidance counsellors. What did you learn from that? Um, well, first of all, we learned that there's a huge appetite th there among guidance counsellors to know more about engineering because it's a difficult profession to really convey to school students because there's somewhat of a paradox that the, the, hand, the, the work we do is everywhere. You know, the screens that are so ubiquitous, that there are, the, the way we travel, the way we get our energy, the way we get clean water. These are all the work of engineers. But the actual engineering endeavour that goes into delivering these is somewhat invisible and people don't understand the creativity and the teamwork and the fun that goes into engineering endeavour. Uh, there was a report recently there for the Department of Education on, on gender balance in STEM education and they came up with some very interesting findings including the fact that there's no single cause for the underrepresentation of, of young women in the STEM subjects which we do see particularly at secondary school level and then continuing on into college. So there's no single intervention that will fix it. You need multiple interventions. So p perhaps we all have a job of work to do to show the diversity of the role of an engineer. Um, Absolutely. So Orla, how do we actually go about growing the numbers of students who will participate in either STEM subjects or progress towards an engineering career? Well, I think that that report for the Department of Education had a, a number of suggestions as to things that might be done about, you know, for, first of all, you want to get the subject choices right in school. So, for example, at the moment, uh, young women who study, uh, women doing the Leaving Cert are nine times more likely to study higher level biology than higher level physics. 
whereas men are twice as likely to study higher level biology than higher level physics. So, you know, even at school level, mm. you start to see those subject choices that make a big difference. Interestingly, though, in 2021, there were more young women studying higher level mathematics at Leaving Cert level than men. So and that would certainly not have been the case some years previously. So we're starting to see impact of some of the interventions that are being made. We want to get very good equity of participation across STEM subject choices. We want to support practice in STEM for educators and teachers. We want to get learner access to STEM and, and, and really address all the societal and cultural barriers that are out there to gender balance in the STEM subjects. These were among the recommendations in that report, which I think are very sensible. Um, Orla, is there a shortage of, of engineers at the moment in Ireland? I've heard anecdotally from some businesses that there, there's a, a huge difficulty in trying to, to contract them for consultancy work on large projects. Yeah, there, is, there, there really is. And across all the disciplines, so both in, in, in uh, uh, construction, in all those industrial domains that are so important to our economic progress, there is a huge shortage of engineers. We're, we're, we're seeing companies all our member companies, all the companies we talk to tell us that they will be recruiting in much bigger numbers in future years. And the supply of talent is the biggest challenge. Now, something that has been very important to us in recent years is attracting talent into the country. Mm. And so we want to develop our own talent from within the country, but also attract in talent. So in Engineers Ireland, for example, in 2020, 40% of our new members were what we call global engineers, those educated outside Ireland or the UK. And this is a huge increase on recent years. So we want to make sure that Ireland remains a really attractive destination for mobile engineering talent. So two efforts then to try and promote um, um, the the career of engineering domestically through our uh, primary and secondary school system and on into university and then to recruit internationally. Um, Orly, you've also been involved in some efforts um, to help Ukrainian refugees who are coming to Ireland, making your networks available to anyone who might want to continue work or indeed study here. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. Uh, so, so in Engineers Ireland, we're, first of all, we reached out to our sister organisation in Ukraine to, to, to give our, our, our support and, and, and express our, our horror at what is happening in the country. We've also reached out to those, any Ukrainian engineers who come to Ireland, if they want to become established here, we can uh, evaluate their engineering qualifications. We can give them access to free online CPD opportunities, link them up with industry, link them up with our regional network, with our sectoral network across all the different sectors of engineering. So any engineering students also who arrive in Ireland from Ukraine, we can offer them advice, we can signpost them and we can make connections. And we're also working with the Irish Red Cross to assess the suitability of accommodation that has been pledged by the public to house Ukrainian refugees. So as an organisation, we're really seeking to do all we possibly can to assist at this time. Well, Orla, the very best of luck with your endeavours. OK, we'll leave it there. That's Orla Feely, who is President of Engineers Ireland and Vice President for Research, Innovation and Impact at University College Dublin. Orla, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope that you found the topics informative and we do like to hear from you about issues that you'd like us to look at. So please get in touch with us via email at takingstock at newstalk.com. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app where you'll find an extended version of today's show. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer Simon Keane with Jojo Cardoso on sound. 
Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day.